I hope you enjoyed that episode of Voices from the Holy Land. We'll bring you more over the course of the next two months. And we're shifting gears here, but also from the archives. Recently, the Trump administration released its proposed budget for the Bureau of Land Management for the fiscal year 2018. It includes a shocking request to Congress to lift the ban on slaughtering America's iconic wild horses and burros. It could result in the killing of tens and tens of thousands of wild horses and burros that are on federally protected land. In light of that news, we're dipping into the Steiner Show archive to talk with Jean-Albert Renault. Jar, as he's called one time in his life, Renault was a Motown star who grew up here in the city of Baltimore. But he also had a deep love for horses and animals and raises mustangs and stallions on his land in Baltimore County. This is the story of Jean-Albert Renault, an extraordinary figure who came from an East Baltimore housing project in the heart of the ghetto to becoming a Motown star to devoting his life to saving the wild horses of our hemisphere and bringing the kids from the street corners of America to see their lives as one with the free spirits of the nation. We visited Renault, or as he's known today by his initials, Jar, at his ranch in northern Baltimore County, about 35 miles or so north of Baltimore City. I knew Renault many years ago when he was star of his own group, Renault and the Junctions, that opened for most of Motown's headliners. We only recently rediscovered one another. I had no idea he had become one with a horse in ways that make him more than a whisperer. They make him spiritually connected to a being that speaks to the free spirit of our land. As we sat in his living room, which is actually part of the barn where his magnificent horses live, I asked him to talk about how he first discovered his love of horses. Being said, you have carried me, you have carried me from nowhere to everywhere. Horse, a joy to behold you are. The thing that locked me my friend, was my grandfather, my great grandfather. And it was very fortunate in uh, the time that I was born that uh, the large families, you know, you know, in the country, they, they had 14 and 15 kids to help run the family. It was more or less a labor thing rather than a, a love of so many kids. And my grandparents and great-grandparents had, uh, when black farmers and native farmers were, were more prevalent, um, had horses and uh, sows and well, pigs and chickens and all the stuff that uh, probably most of the kids don't even know where their food. I knew where everything we ate came from. And uh, that started it. And uh, my first experience was being put on two black mules where my grandfather used to walk behind a plow and plow the fields. And I got pictures of the of the mules and him. And and, uh, and I sat there and he put a big straw hat on my head. And I, you know how you, 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 you <laughs> fantasize as a kid, you know, you, you find yourself sitting by the water and you're going to be the great sailor or something like this. And I, I was the great conquistador. You know, I was going to conquer the world on this mule. And I grew up. Every summer we went down, you know, the 40s, the war came, and my dad went into the Navy. And so my family left the farm and came up to Baltimore. I was three years old. But I always went back. And I always visioned and dreamed of having a horse ranch, horse farm. Even your old boy. From the time they put me on that mule, it locked. It locked. 
because you know being that young and something that big that you felt like you were controlling it and it was you know it, it it's it's like kids look at their lives today and they look at the size of the planet and the enormity mm-hmm. of of trying to take on not only their neighborhood or their their state or their country but the planet and it's huge for them it's a, it's a fear very very intimidating thing to 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 look at how big it all is and uh, as a little kid that's the biggest thing that i had ever uh, and and it walked it had big eyes and looked at me and had teeth it is the horse that basically saved me and snapped me out of being um, maybe where some other artists and, and, and get in the music business and the sex and drugs and rock and roll time of our lives. It was the horse and then finally slowing down and having a son that uh, slowed me down enough to change my way of thinking. And um, it basically, uh, I think it saved my life. Wax for a bit about your sense of the essence of the horse. I guess the first sign was it is to see my grandfather take an animal as a little boy and talk to it the way that he talked to it through body language and little sounds that he made that the animal had gotten used to, and it responded. And here I'm a little kid watching this old man behind a plow get these mules to, to do whatever he turned, back up, do whatever he wants. He, oh, and, and, and I'm looking at this and I'm going, whoa. You mean I might be able to learn to do that? So um, that was the beginning of looking at what you can actually do with these animals. But I had never known or had any experiences about studying what they do without us. You know, it was always the uh, control factor. It's like the dog and the cat, uh, the master atmosphere around it for whatever you want to do with them, plowing or dressage or jumping or whatever. And it wasn't until I started to really experience working with horses that intimidated humans. And um, in that same process, I started when I first got into horses, when I came back from Motown and, and, and got married and had Christian and had a son, what my grandfather had taught me about horses, I said, maybe I can start a relationship with my kid, not having a father, wanting to be a better father to my son. And so I started starting the nature of the horse without man. What would be that approach? Well, how would you approach an animal if you just went right out into the wild the way my Native American heritage part of me uh, was to go and experience that animal who had never even been ridden, been fed by man, had its own water, did its own sh- trimming of its hoofs, um, ate the wild tobacco and other herbs that kept the worms and parasites out, rolled in the mud to keep the flies and stuff from biting. So I said... Let me look at that. And in doing and starting to look at it, it taught me something about the whole structure of working with animals. That we never take enough time, and I associated that when I started to work with my son and kids, that we never enough take enough time to learn who they are and what they're about without the dominant factor. Without, without the control the, the dominant right, factor. Right, right. The control factor. Do what I say. Uh so um, I started experiencing and went on a, on a crusade to go study the wild horses, which really started, and that put me back with uh, you, you and I talking about the relationship of going out and experiencing uh, the Native Americans, or, uh, the natives of this country, and, uh, and how they approach the horse. Totally different than basically what uh, uh, the, we call civilization uh, has approached. 
And um, I realized that the horse does not talk. It does not shake hands. It has none of the communication skills that we as human beings have to relate to each other. So I had to find a way to relate to this horse by watching how they relate to each other. And they nibble on each other. First thing a person does when a horse nibbles on is smack him upside the head. So that creates headshot. They wonder why the head's always snapping back. And pretty soon the horse starts to respond back because it starts to, it's trying to nibble on you a little bit. So it turns in from a nibble to almost an attack based on how many times it got smacked upside the head for trying to say, hey, I like you. Um, next thing is I looked at the amount of abuse and use on the hoof the intrusion of nails into the hoof. And uh, and I said, well, these horses didn't have shoes in a while. Who trimmed them? So I studied that and realized that the barefoot, the hoof, is really the shock absorber of the leg. If you put metal on it, you take away a third of the shock absorber from the hoof, which starts to traumatize the legs. So I started taking off the shoes. First, I started off by only keeping the shoes on in the winter, no shoes in the summer. I saw how well they wear it, and you know, and, I, and I, you know, I ride distance. So I said, well, why not take them off, period? And then I looked at the last thing that I, I really looked at is the control factor of something called the bit. And I, I always try to look at animals, dogs, cats, whatever. If I had a master, would I like for him to put a bridle on me and put a bit in my mouth? There is again back to that human manatee concept or attitude of dominance and control, whether it's horses, dogs, cats, or our children. Uh, so I decided to take the bit out of the mouth, looked at a couple of techniques that were around, and uh, came up with a thing called a borzoid and a hackamore. And I used those for a period of time, and then I just went out there with a halter, put a snap-on range on it, and an old friend of ours, Reggie Daniels, and We'd be out there riding horses and people would come up with their bits and all their control. We'd be out there with a little snap-on lead rein on the horse, rolling. I realized that my, my, my riding became much better whether I was riding a gated horse or a trotting horse when I learned to sit the horse and use my balance to move and move the horse not only to reining or what I call primitive dressage, which is touch, but just the weight shift. Now, if you look at the Native Americans riding and hunting buffalo, they didn't have any place when you're riding amongst 10, 15,000 head of buffalo to hunt for food and for clothing and so forth and so on. You will notice that their hands are with bow and arrow. They aren't reining at all. So how are they moving that horse between that and if the horse goes down, it's over? And I learned that it was weight shift. And you notice that most of them didn't have any saddle. It was a pad. So I says, well, if one of the greatest horse cultures of all time rode like that and outrode the cavalry and outrode everybody and they didn't have any bits and they didn't have any uh, uh, saddles and no shoes on this, uh, duh, which is a word I love the kids who come up with, duh. I love that <laughs> word. <laughs> so I started to um, put that into my uh, training uh uh, format and I called it, which a lot of people are calling it, natural riding. Renault's system of natural riding has developed into much more than a recreational pastime. He founded Project Arrowhead, 
to teach his writing methods and philosophy to inner-city children. The kids come to his farm to learn about respect for the environment, discipline, and the rewards of hard work. But perhaps most importantly, to meet someone who came up in the streets of Baltimore and who has followed his passions and talent to success. Being one with the horse is also, how do I become more one with Mother Earth? How, how do I ground myself to have a little bit more respect? And if you don't experience it, then throwing a can out the window and, and, and your refrigerator and all these things is, is, is a lack of respect for our water, for the land, for the air. Because we never put ourselves in a position to go experience it. We're all locked in. And the kids I now bring out here have never, they never saw a chicken. They go to the store, they, the chicken comes out of the store, the eggs. Uh, they never saw a cow milked. Uh, they come out here, the first thing that is out of their mouth. Now, you know, you and I have lived in the city. That's one of the stinkingest places you can live. Between the garbage, the exhaust, films, uh, uh, the manufacturing smoke signals, uh, stacks and stuff like this. I mean, your eyes, uh, the, the, the asthma and the stuff that I was developing in the cities, uh, which has cleared up since I've been out here. The first thing they said when I got here, oh, it stinks. After all the scents that they have to smell in the city, they got to come out here and smell manure. And we clean our barn regular every day. That was the first comment out of their mouths. And then the next comment was, oh, the bugs. The bugs, when you look at living in a city where most of these kids are coming from, where there's mice, there's rats, there's all these things that they have acclimated themselves to because that's a city. They come out here and the simplicity of the lifestyle out here and the beauty. No walls, no sirens, no one hollering across the street, frick, frack, fracking, or whatever they got to say out of their mouths to someone else. Uh, no one running down the street uh, uh, with someone's purse or breaking on someone's car. Or, so all of a sudden, they're lost. Where they're on point in the city, on point, I mean, they are on point. The children that I bring out here know the city. They know how to survive. They are totally lost when they get out here. So the horse, when I went back relative to understanding the wild horse and how to approach something that isn't used to us, is how do you approach wild kids who've gone off on their own and basically had to raise themselves and, and only know one structure. The horse knows the wilderness without us the kids know the city streets and and what goes on without us and they they're smarter than we give them credit for because they're surviving in it not all of them what, whatever they got to do they survive whatever the wild horse has to do it survives so my philosophy and my theory was if i bring them together it takes me back to the intimidation the first time i saw that mule my granddaddy wanted to put me up on and then i realized maybe i can control this this is the beginning of me looking at taking that on and then maybe taking on what I call creating and living a life, being willing to live my life journey. And that's what I've tried to do uh, when we talked about Project Arrowhead is to bring these animals together that nobody wants and to bring these kids that are on the street that nobody wants and see if they can heal each other. And it works. Wild kids and wild, wild horses. Wild kids and wild horses healing together. The horse has given us so much that we should be thankful for. And to see us 
not have a respect for these animals. And for all horsemen to look at that the foundation of whatever we do with horses goes back to the free spirit of the horse before we stepped into it to dominate it. And that we should leave a legacy of that to all generations to look at these animals in the freeness of it all. Yes, the bald eagle, and you know, you and I talk about freedom represents the country, this eagle. And I love the bald eagle, and I love what it represents. But what it says to me is that the eagle flies over America and does whatever he does from the air on America. The horse carried us. We never rode an eagle, never carried any freight. So the one animal that represents basically America, we owe this animal something. And we owe our children, our youth something. Our youth is the future of whatever America is going to be. And our children is the future of whatever humanity is going to be on the totality of this planet we call Mother Earth. Renault's unique training methods have taken him to far-flung corners of our globe. I asked him to tell the story of how his love of horses landed him in the Middle East and to friendships with princes, kings, and duchesses. People would see me ride. I'd ride up, like I said, I'd ride up half nude, uh, uh, looking like a full blood uh, uh, Apache, and um, on a no no blanket, no nothing, bareback, no shoes. And they would say, "How do you ride like that?" And I'd ride up hills and down hills, and they were saddled and holding on, and I'd be cruising up the hill and down the hill and crossing streams and swimming across these rivers and stuff on my horse, and and laying beside them as we we're going across, and they would just say, "Jamie." Nettie, can you help me learn to do that? So that started a little reputation thing going on. That reputation got me sent to, first, the United Arab Emirates and uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And they were just starting to build Dubai. And strangely enough, uh, when, I, when I was sent there, I thought it was going to be an endurance race. And it was. It was to be 35 miles straight into the desert on Arabians. And they sent me three horses to train here at my home. And then we put them on uh, jet planes and flew them overseas. And then I went over there and lived for four months, training them in the desert. For a ride into the desert of 35 miles and a bet between two um, uh, citizens of uh, the United Arab Emirates who were from the royal family. Uh, If a camel would beat an Arabian into the desert for 35 miles. And uh, I looked at this and I thought about this, and I I basically knew the answer. But the bet was on, and the bet wasn't small. So um, the Arabian beat the camel. If it had been a longer race, the camel would have beat the Arabian. So, um, but looking at the culture... And that I went to a country that is an Arab country that was one of the countries people were seeing was a dangerous place to go and that I was putting my life on the line to go there. And going there and not talking about God or who's right about God or how you treat women or how you don't treat women. Going there in a relationship about what do we have in common and what can we talk about on common ground. And it was the horse. 
So I'm in the royal family where politicians can't get. I'm sitting there talking to them, meeting their wives and their kids and, and having a great time with a guy around me telling anybody you don't mess with him. Through a horse. I went, whoa. So that got around and that got into the hands of the uh, emir of Qatar. So I was invited over to do one of the greatest horses in the world, which is a 26 mile ride into the desert. And these rides are not done in, in hours. These rides are done in like an hour and 18 minutes in temperatures of 120 degrees and sand into the desert. So you are rolling. And it's done very well because the World Veterinary Association supervises whether the horse is being overworked, stops the race. You have vet checks to come into. So Sarah Ferguson, who's the Duchess of York, she wrote her story of her life in this book. Yes. And somehow there's... You ended up in this book. You ended up in the Duchess of York writing about you and horses. What are you doing, a little boy from the projects come up being with Duchess of York? That's what I want to know. That, that, that's what I wanted to know. <laughs> we both wanted to know that. <laughs> and when I tell you the story, that's exactly where I was in the middle of the desert of Lawrence of Arabian fame in Qatar by myself with a little Arabian horse. Saying, how did I get from the projects to being in the middle of the desert by myself. This is an interesting story. I was asked to go to Qatar to bring a celebrity team. Qatar is one of the more progressive uh, Arab countries. I'm at the like Holiday Inn Hilton thing there, and I'm on the dance floor boogalooing, doing the, the Jean Reno on the dance floor <laughs> and uh, <laughs> to get down. And uh, one of the horse people came and said, would you come with us? We, there's someone that would like to meet you. Um, the Duchess of York was going through a very heavy period in her life. Princess Di had just died. And she wanted to take on a challenge because she and Princess Di were going through the same thing with the royal family. They didn't, weren't born into that royalty. So to have to be structured like that was a very difficult thing, and neither one of them wanted their kids brought up into that tight structure. They wanted to have a little bit more contact with the people that they represented in the monarchy. And she was very serious about this. She had gone out and gotten world sponsors to give her, for every mile of 26 miles that she accomplished, would be a huge amount of money donated to the charity called Children in Crisis, Chances for Children, that she and Princess Di had together. Corporations donated because they didn't think she would get two miles. This is, you may think you can ride. This is a very grueling race. Um, so they asked me if I would, uh, since I had been put in a real bad situation, um, if I would supervise her and get her and ride with her rather than try to win. There's no way for me to win at that point anyway because through the racial thing that happened, the horses I had trained here, the horse that I would have, been in contention for the money was taken away from me. And 13 days before the race, they sent me to a barn with 200 stallions, Qatari-bred Arabians, and said, pick one if you want to ride. Thinking I would just say, there's no way I can compete. And uh, I have a way of training. So in 13 days, I trained a horse that was bred in that country. And no horse ever bred in Qatar had ever finished this race. And my goal was not to try and win it, but was to finish it. And when they asked me to do that, I said, well, this is cool because I need to ride a lot slower than the others. <laughs> and I don't think this, uh, that the Duchess of York is prepared for this. And I had trained a horse that was a Russian horse, a desert horse, an Akateki horse. Uh, 
His name was Gal. They had given the Duchess of York this little nag to ride. And Sarah looked at the horse because she is a horsewoman. She says, now, wait a minute. I want a horse. I told her that she should ride this Akiteki horse. And I took a film crew over there when I went there. And um, we rode. And uh, I got her through the ride. Four miles out from the finish line, my little Katari horse broke down. And when your horse breaks down, you get off of his back and you start to walk it, give it a chance to, to catch it. Because it had 13 days training against horses that had been trained for a year to do this ride. And um, I, I came in I, uh, a mile out from, from the finish line. I got back on his back and I rode in. And um, when that horse mine broke down, here I am with all the bad stuff that happened with me. There's a helicopter of security over top of us. There's military police on the side all the way through the ride up to the last four miles. Cameras. I'm superstar riding next to the Duchess of York. <laughs> My horse broke down. I told her to go on to finish it to get the most money out of each mile completed. You only have four miles to go. She didn't want to leave. I said, you've got to go. This is bigger than you feeling you owe me anything. And she went on. When she left, everybody left. You understand? When I say everybody, it looked like the sand left. And here I am on this worn out little Katari horse that nobody believed in. Nobody wanted. And here I am myself flashing back to East Baltimore in the project saying, how did I get here? What's up with this? And so I got the horse back. But it lets you know you sometimes look at your life and no matter how good or bad it is, you find yourself into a position. How did I come from the projects? How did I believe enough in myself and my skills and what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be to come from that element to the civil rights movement to move from the basic projects to be able to hang out like we're talking now with kings and royal families that are so far past any vision that I would have had ever had for myself as a child. That's what the time, first time I was put on that horse, that mule, did. How can I handle this? Well, you got to believe in yourself. And you got to have a foundation, not in religion, but in a faith to believe in something greater than yourself. And you got to realize that you didn't ask to come here. You didn't ask to show up being Jewish, black, or Christian, or whatever. You didn't ask to come here. So something set you here. It's a respect for whatever sent you here and to realize that you must have been sent here for a reason. And your life journey is to try and figure out what that reason is and do the best you can with it because you're not going to ever be perfect. It's not a perfect world. Try to find and get yourself in touch with why you were sent here. And you weren't put here to stay. So if you get that point, you realize you got some work to do. And all I've been trying to do is the work and the work keeps blowing my mind. Keeps blowing my mind. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our assistant producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlikan. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Blue Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. Podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Please visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And if you're a source for cool jazz and more, W-E-A-A, 88.9 FM, a voice of the community.
I'm Mark Steiner.